Hello and welcome to the Fried Egg Podcast. I'm Garrett Morrison. Today we're talking a little master's history with the prolific author, Kurt Sampson. But first, this episode is brought to you by the Fried Egg Pro Shop. It's at proshop.thefriedegg.com. And right now you will find some new hat styles in stock. We've got a navy mesh back hat. We've got a yellow performance hat. And it is a, a really cool looking yellow, trust me. And not one, but two styles of bucket hat. A classic bucket and a big bucket for ultimate sun protection, I suppose. You know, I, I think Joel Damon, recent PGA Tour winner, has really proven the virtues of a good bucket hat. So I'm, it's time to get yourself one. Summer's on the way. So that's proshop.thefriedegg.com. We have apparel, we have prints, we have accessories, and of course, headwear. Check it out. So the genesis of this episode is an essay that Kurt Sampson, my guest today, wrote for Golf Digest during last year's COVID-postponed November Masters. Basically, it's about the strange experience of being in Augusta during the Masters, finding the town very quiet and not going to the tournament. And he wonders whether it could be the first quote-unquote bad Masters since 1968. And that prompts Kurt to mention in the lead of this article, a book that he wrote about that 1968 masters, which is called the lost masters. Some of you will know that tournament as the scorecard masters, where after 72 holes, Roberto Davisenzo and Bob Golby were tied, but Davisenzo signed an incorrect scorecard. So there was no playoff and Golby was named the champion. And a lot of fans were pretty angry about it. Kurt Sampson's book digs deeply into that Masters and the context around it, and I, I just found it totally fascinating, uh, not least because I saw all of these uncanny parallels between 1968 and 2020. And I'll let you find some of those for yourself in the conversation that we have here. But for me, the big question is this. When the world is in disarray, what role, what responsibility even do sports have? And particularly golf, particularly the masters, which so many people treat as an escape from modern life. What happens when that promise of escape is really put to the test? So with a proper spring masters coming up next week, I thought it was a good time to dig into these issues. Without further ado, here's Kurt Sampson. I miss a green, for example. I'm already upset. When I find my ball in the bunker, I'm really upset. And when I find my ball in a fried egg. Fried egg. The dreaded fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg. Fried egg lie. I'm about ready to run off the golf course. We just get uh, get right underway. Are you ready to get into it? Let's rock. Okay. All right. So, Kurt, you are at the WGC match play at Austin Country Club. I understand right now. How has that been going? Um, actually, the, uh, late breaking news: I am not there. I'm in oh. Austin to um, play in a Hickory Golf Tournament, the Onion Creek Hickory Tournament. We members of the golf's lunatic fringe who like to make a hard game harder uh play with antique golf clubs and we wear plus fours and uh it's quite a parade what a delightful surprise so that's going on in austin at the same time as the match play that's right uh um had a preliminary thing yesterday and the first round of the competition um is this morning how long have you been into hickory golf quite a long time uh, a friend in texas got me into it off and on, I'm very serious about it. I'm on the U.S. team in a U.S. versus Europe uh, Ryder Cup competition. I have been on the U.S. side for oh, five or six iterations of that. And if COVID lifts, um, we're playing in St. Andrews um, in October for the next uh, match against those hated Swedes and Brits and Scots. <laughs> we're going to get them this time. So what do you like about Hickory Golf? The modest scale, uh, really, it, it does annoy me when the TV announcer murmurs, uh, Dustin's got 184 yards, looks like a little nine iron, you know, and 
No, that's not the way it's supposed to be. 184 is a, is a pretty good four iron. Um, so it's, it's kind of a reaction against the current game and club heads that are as big as a canned ham. And it, and it does salute the history, mm-hmm. which is a good thing. These guys really do care about the history of this sport. What I've heard some people say about hickory golf. Now, I haven't played hickory golf very much myself. I have some hickory clubs that I've been given by a friend, and they're amazing objects, really. I mean, they're they're just beautiful, for uh, for one thing. Um, I haven't really played like a, a full round with a full set of, of hickory clubs. But what I understand about it is that the the walk to your next ball, the walk to your next shot is uh, you used the word scale earlier of a different scale. It just feels mm-hmm. different. The game feels different. It feels like it's going quicker. That's that's what I've heard people say. Is that is that kind of what you find? Yeah, it's um, like playing in Fenway Park versus, I don't know, but pick some giant open expanse. It's it's this little jewel box game. And we play, the, admittedly, the courses are about 6,000 yards long. Um, so it's... It's it's just fun that way. Uh, you, you can really rip a drive if you're over, you know, two ten, two twenty, thirty with roll. You've uh, you know that's that's muscle time. <laughs> so last year in November, you were at a very different kind of golf tournament, the November Good segue, Masters. Garrett, <laughs> that, yes. that was, I'm a professional here, you know. <laughs> um, you were at the November Masters. Uh, tell me about your experience at at last year's very strange masters. Uh, yes. Uh, my essay in golf digest, which I think you read uh, Garrett um, was off the course because we were all off the course. I couldn't gain entry to the grounds. It was a weird situation to be there, uh, not watching golf in person and, you know, soaking up that atmosphere, which is so, so great. So I kind of wandered around the city asking <clears throat> people what the heck they were doing there, why, what they thought about all this and how the, the lowercase masters was affecting them. And it, it was kind of fun uh, talking to oh, uh, florists and uh, hostesses out front at an empty restaurant and, and so forth. Surprisingly, I had some friends. I've, I've been going there for so long. I, I, I know a lot of locals and these friends from North Carolina who came to visit a a golf pro in fact uh, and he brought his three assistants to not watch the tournament to uh, sit at a a friend's house um, have some beer gallons of it um, and watch the event maybe play some cards so the the um, momentum of reunion there was still strong but I don't know how it if it was a complete shutdown again this year, it'd be damaging for all concerned. I, I guess they're allowing a limited number of uh, spectators. You know, in your essay, you seem to be capturing something about the feel of the town during this very, you know, kind of almost eerie type of masters. What was that? What was that feeling that you were going for? I don't know if I, uh, I I achieved it. I guess uh, the disorientation. Who has ever gone, uh, made a point of going to a place for a golf tournament to not watch the golf tournament? I can't think of a precedent. So it was <clears throat> it was so odd. Caterers are going broke and ticket brokers, and you you know probably quite a bit about the economy there, the economy of that thing, the one major that stays put. Things are. It's a unique uh, ecosystem. Ecosystem? Either one, I think. But, but, but it's very dependent on – Augusta is very dependent in many ways on the Masters, in other words, by the town of Augusta. That, that's, so, that's so true. Um, although I should say, since my nose is close to the ground there, what with the club expanding outward like uh, Germany in 1933 um, – <laughs> There's some resentment. Uh, you, nobody makes um, their once a year buck for uh, parking cars in their yards. It doesn't happen anymore. There's, uh, you, you've seen it, 100 acres of free parking. The prediction <clears throat> by some of the cynical locals is that they're even going to, uh, the club intends to take away their, their house rental income 
by having more and more on uh, campus housing at uh, at Augusta National. I can see them doing that. Because that's a big thing, right? Is that uh, some people rent out their homes for that week and sure. earn, uh, you know, pretty good money from <laughs> from the very wealthy PGA Tour stars who are who are renting homes. As well as the uh, the many, um, uh, there's the Irish Tourist Board. There's the um, I don't know Toro or USGA or other big golf industry types that would come to town, mm-hmm. entertain a lot, and need a big house uh, with that caterer and that florist and and the cleanup crew and so forth. Yeah, it's um, an interesting economy there once a year. Yeah, so I, I can hear it a little bit in the in the way that you're describing the relationship between the course and the town, or the club and the town. Like many golf writers, you have complex feelings about the Masters. <laughs> Unlike many golf writers, you've actually been willing to write about them and talk about them. Um, so I'm I'm curious, what what are your earliest experiences with the Masters? What what comes to mind when you think of the Masters and your childhood, if if anything? Oh my goodness, my childhood. That's a <clears throat> it was such a big deal. I, I grew up in the in the northeast in uh near Boston and then later in northern Ohio. Oh my gosh, we just uh, were counting down the minutes until there was that uh, little tinkle of piano music or whatever it was back then. It's guitar now, but um you know, the screen would come up and there would be I guess it was Pat Summerall was the the first voice you'd hear. And then they do the little the little the, uh, there's Frank Gleiber on 16 and Vern Lundquist, who is uh, I'm going to meet later today. He's uh, handing out a, an award at this uh, at Onion Creek for this Hickory event. So they introduced the announcers, and you know it was like they say the for us the first sign of spring, the first sign that uh, golf season was really underway. And I was just a kid imitating golf pros, Arnie's mannerisms and the way Ken Venturi put his golf club on the bag. And, you know, I, I even smoked for a couple of weeks when I was age 12, uh, trying to do it Arnie style. Right. So a big deal. Uh, Masters has always been huge for me, as probably for you and others listening in. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something akin to uh a shared national experience, which are, you know, more and more rare these days, right? There's, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, over the years, uh, you know, I mentioned that there's some complexity to the way that you have written about the masters. How did your opinion of the masters as an institution, as an American institution evolve over the years and what, what caused it to evolve? Well, I, I think on the one hand, I've appreciated it more and more over the years, what they do, the uh, Swiss watch way they they run the thing. Every other tournament, including U.S. Open, seem uh, amateurish to me, like they're scratching their heads. I, we need more uh, gallery marshals on hole 13 or the trash bins are overflowing and the halfway house on number four. That's not going to happen at Augusta National. Those guys are such pros. They, they're fully staffed, anticipate every need, extremely polite. But then there was, you know, uneasy. I was uneasy about the place, having done lots of research for my book, The Masters, and fully understanding um, who the Pinkertons were and their history. I think back then, uh, when I first started going to the Masters uh, in the late 90s, um, they were not oppressive, but I, you know, they were like bouncers. They let you know that this is not a place where you can run between shots. Uh, when, if you're following excitedly some group, no running, no yelling, no loud displays reminded me. I mean, as I've learned more and more that uh, both uh, Cliff Roberts and Bob Jones um, had military backgrounds, at least during their wars, the great war and then world war two for, for Jones. Very, very much a, a controlled thing um, that was nothing wrong with it, but seemed rather strict, seemed contributed a little to the church-like, church-like atmosphere there. Right. 
Yeah. Do, do you think that the that competence that you mentioned earlier, that ability to really run a golf tournament and do it well year in, year out and and do all the ancillary things better than than everybody else, seemingly, including the media portion of it, the website, the app, the, you know, all, all that modern stuff. You think the masters as a as an old traditional institution wouldn't be very good at it. But in fact, they're much better at it yeah. than everybody else and are, are leading the way on on all that kind of stuff. So there's that, that is, there's that real level of competence that you're talking about. It seems like that might be part and parcel with the less attractive sort of control that those two, you know, sort of must go together in a way. It could be Garrett. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Um, from repeated constant, well, not constant, but I, I go almost every year and, and have great friendships there. I can hardly buy a drink or a dinner there, believe it or not. I got to see the Masters uh, and Augusta National more from their point of view than from the once a year visitor who only goes uh, and watches. To them, it was Yankees taking over to some degree, uh, Yankee influence, uh, um, corporate influence it seems to become to them more and more controlled by uh, some faceless, powerful people who weren't really Augustans, who really weren't getting it that people like to park their cars over there. They like, they like the old freelance style that this was our community golf tournament. It became less and less. It has become less and less that and more thing in itself i think you'd agree oh yeah for sure so just you know thinking about your 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 lifelong i guess relationship with the masters uh how did you get interested in writing about the 1968 masters specifically you you wrote a book in 2006 called the lost masters and it came to my attention because i read your piece in golf digest last year about the 2020 November masters. Uh And in the lead of that piece, you mention the 68 masters in your book, the lost masters about it uh, and draw some parallels between those two years and those two tournaments. And and we can get into some of those parallels, but uh, just thinking about the, the genesis of that book and your, and your will to write about that particular masters, uh, where did that come from? Well, by then I had already written my book, uh, The Masters, uh, an imaginative uh, title, but it it was a good book. With a good Um, subtitle too. Can you tell us the subtitle? The subtitle was Golf, Money, and Power in Augusta, Georgia. There you go. So I wrote about the town and the tournament uh, and and the club, all three, noticing what a sweetheart press uh, the institution had had over the years when seldom was heard a discouraging word. I don't know. I, I write to keep myself awake and to hopefully uh, entertain uh, a reader and inform him or her. Although I'm hardly, I don't think I've myself is way out there just by writing what I perceive to be true facts. Uh, it was possibly slightly controversial. My, my take on, on this uh, beloved institution for the, regarding the 68 uh, masters and my book, the lost masters, um, I just reflected that there had only been one bad tournament. They uh, they whiffed exactly once, and they've been having tournaments there since 1934, I think, except for wars, correct? And it was so vividly part and parcel of a, of a country that was sliding into the abyss that was feeling like a banana republic, uh, so divided and so unhappy and at war. My father was a WW2 combat vet and my remember my brother coming home from his first year at Ohio State and um, his formerly crew cut uh, second son now had blonde hair down to his shoulders and, <laughs> and a mustache and pops hit the roof and you know meanwhile you know he's seeing Vietnam war protests on TV and here comes his son looking like that it was Things like that, I think, happened in lots of households. 1968 was a very bad year um, and a very bad year for the Masters. Could you say a little more about what was happening in America in in April 1968? From memory, a couple of things. uh, Shockingly, there was that freaking North Koreans hijacked one of our our ships uh, sailing, according to us, in international waters, the, the Pueblo. 
and they hold the captain and crew for publicity and propaganda purposes for a long time. And it was tortuous. Um, it seemed wrong. And it seemed like our diplomacy and power were so defanged that we couldn't do anything about it. So we had to live with this every day. It was like the, um, uh, the hostages, hostage situation years later. Vietnam War, of course. Mm-hmm. And um, some of the the, the leaders in our country saying we shouldn't be there. So what, what I was 16 and I, I didn't know which way to go. There's my, my father who was my country right or wrong. And my brother who got to smell tear gas uh, near the campus. Then the assassinations, the big thing yeah. in terms of that masters was seven days, eight days before the first round, Martin Luther King, Jr. was assassinated in uh, in Memphis and the city, or not the city, the entire country went into lockdown. There was a, a day of mourning on the Sunday of the Greater Greensboro Open, I think was the uh, event before the Masters. So that uh, golf, you know, is so trivial in the big picture, but important to us. Golf got extended, that tournament finished on a Monday crowds at Augusta were tiny and quiet. Everybody was chastened. I think it was a weird atmosphere. And then, you know, as I wrote, and I I think it's true, we were probably looking for a pick-me-up from the Masters that that it had always delivered. And instead, we get another bummer. It was just a terrible finish there with, you know, a parallel between our government being clueless and not powerful like it had been in the face of changing crazy circumstances, we, the Augusta national people, they whiffed, they blew it. It was a, a horrible result, a bad, a difficult situation that could have been, could have been not nearly so bad. That could, I think it really could have been resolved in five minutes and then they could have had a playoff. But we'll talk about what what actually happened in a moment. Maybe we could set uh, set that up with some of the some of the characters who are involved, put some people on the stage here. You know, first of all, we have we have that old guard at at Augusta, the 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 legends of of that club, including Bobby Jones. So so where is Bobby Jones at in in 1968? Poor Bobby, uh, critically ill with syringomyelia, I believe it's pronounced. Uh, this terrible wasting neurological disease he had that attacks the spine and made him brittle as a leaf. And he was wheelchair bound by 1968. Um, had a catheter in permanently. And then, uh, you know, he was got the flu there at home in Atlanta. Um, but he was looking for rejuvenation like everybody else. So he had told the chauffeur that we're going anyway. So he and uh, I think Mrs. for a while at least made the annual drive um, east uh, to Augusta. So there's Bobby in his cabin with the flu and very ill. So yeah, and and to be clear, he, now here is an American legend, right? Here is the Absolutely. and the representative yeah. of of the Masters uh, at least publicly, and um and he and he is ailing uh, quite severely at, at this point in in 1968, uh, which which has some sort of symbolic resonances about you know how how the tournament's doing. Right, and then at the end, in its way, in one telling the result came down to a decision made by him. Right. This, this guy who's what some small portion of the man he had been, I, I can't tell you for sure there was mental decline, but from what he wrote, um, he was just so miserable. Uh, I just don't think he could have been as sharp as he had been. So alongside Bobby Jones and, and the leadership of Augusta national was Clifford Roberts. Um, also an older man at this point and, you know, uh, in the last, uh, what, 10 years of his life, I, I suppose, by, by 1968. So tell me about Clifford Roberts, uh, you know, who was he and, and who was he by 1968? Uh, Cliff had been a, uh, a major, uh, came, in, came from poor circumstances, but worked his way up through hard work and guile without giving every detail, he finds himself uh, um, a stockbroker with a great um, clientele in, in New York. And he was the organizer of, of the club. The first 100 members 
this is almost exactly correct. Of the first 100 members, 99 or 98 were from New York City, and the other two were Bob Jones and his father. So Augusta National was a New York social club all the way for a number of years. That's what it was. And Cliff was the, uh, the dictator, a benign dictator, benevolent or not, depending on your point of view. Very quirky, amusing quirks. I think Steve Melnick was described, remember Steve, the, who was a good golfer, uh, won a USAM and was an announcer. Mm-hmm. Um, he described a conversation with Cliff Roberts, who had such broad spaces between his words that you weren't sure you were still in a conversation with the guy. <laughs> so that was Cliff. And Cliff had uh, declared by then, by 68, that uh, Bob Jones isn't going to do the, the uh, Butler cabin, uh, meet the new champion uh, ceremony anymore. The year before he drooled a bit and he looked like hell. I, I, I no other way to put it. The, the poor guy was terminal. Right. No, I, I mean, no insult to him in that. So that the power dynamic had changed completely. It was uh, Bob Jones was now had was just ceremonial and it was all cliff. So uh, two main players, obviously, in, in this drama, two main golfers, we have Bob Golby and we have Roberto DeVicenzo. And I, I believe your book actually <laughs> taught me how to pronounce his name. Is that is that right? Did I get that? Yeah, right? It is. I had Roberto tell, say it over and over <laughs> that I want to get this down. It's uh, the Brits called him Vice, Vicenzo. Vicenzo. That's what I've heard a lot. <laughs> Without the day and in, in between. And the American-ish Dave Vicenzo or something. Right. Uh, he, he had, for him, it was Day. Day Vicenzo. Yeah. And the, the V, the V. So yeah, getting all those vowels uh, right is actually uh, kind of tricky. But um, and maybe we could start with Bob Golby. This this book taught me a lot about who Bob Golby is. And, and in fact, he is, he is still kicking around. Uh, so Bob Golby, uh, what kind of a character was he in 1968? I, I, I grew up uh, ultimately around Firestone Country Club, which was really a hive of uh, professional golf because there was this thing filmed in the fall called the CBS Golf Classic, which was a two versus two format that they'd play all winter. They taped them in, in the fall. And my father, bless his heart, would say to me, he'd look at me at breakfast and say, you have anything big at school today? And I'd always say no. And he would play hooky and I would play hooky. And we would go a lot to watch the taping of the CBS Golf Classic. So, I, I you know, I was intimate with uh, Bob Golby's game uh, as well as, you know, 20 other guys. And there was also the tour event and there was also the World Series of Golf, which was the, uh, the four major winners. Enough about Firestone. Golby... What a guy. I mean, also from a book, he was America's football hero. I, I was in a bar with him and the, and the, and it sounds like a made up scene, but some guy recognizes him and said, boy, you remember that pass you threw in 56 to beat East St. Louis and Bob, Bob you know, good nature. I said, oh, that was a good game for me. You know, I think we won uh, by two touchdowns or something. He was a high school football hero sports uh, a very uh, good athlete who eventually sort of grudgingly came to golf and he brought up sort of football players style to the game he played mad and divots garrett that guy gouged the the turf at firestone like i i was expecting the superintendent to come around uh, <laughs> to to protest to uh, like a right-handed uppercut imagine that as a as a golf swing that was bob's style. Very straightforward guy. Two years in the military, I think, affected him. He was the hard ass. Uh, guys like Tony Jacklin and others just coming to play here from overseas were not welcomed by Bob Golby and, and his friends. He was the guy who would tell the rookie, tuck in your shirt or you need a haircut, son. We don't like this out here. He was that guy. And they, uh, they kept putting him in charge of things. He was... Uh, uh, Don January, what did he say? He's a good thinker and a doer. He, he was a key, ended up being a key player in the formation of the PGA Tour or the modern PGA Tour in, in 
68, I suppose it was late 68. Yeah, uh, people uh, younger than us don't know that PJ Tour broke away and it was quite painful and right. lots of anger. The, the tour broke away from PGA of America and Golby would, would have been one of the leaders. Right. You described this sort of group of players who idolized Ben Hogan and, and liked to hang out with Sam Snead. <laughs> and, and Golby, I guess, was one of those players. Yeah, a little click. Uh, there were um, just a couple of them. I think Doug Ford was another. Golby was very palatable to Hogan. And uh, Golby took a knee to Ben Hogan, treasured each practice round that they they played. Uh, at the same time, Golby was in the Sneed click, um, played lots of golf with uh, with Sam. Uh, and uh, Bob amusingly told me the about the differences between playing with uh, the two different guys who were stylistically and temperamentally so different. But Golby, you know, he fit in. He was a very good player and respectful to his uh, these two elders. Roberto De Vicenzo, um, tell me about tell me about this man. <laughs> I don't know where you, I don't know where you start, but uh, but what what a legend. Yeah, I think we should say Sam Snead and Kathy Whitworth. You can just go to Blazes. Uh, Roberto is the winningest golfer of all time. He won more tournaments, professional tournaments. How big again they were always, you know, you could argue that about Snead's record too, but they were, does it count when he wins the Switzerland Open and the Portugal Open and the Spanish Open? Yes, I think. Roberto was a, a world traveler. And his game traveled. He put more time on a DC-3 than a pilot, I'd I guess. Just a lovable guy. Uh, always, always was. Unassuming. I, I love this about him, too. Almost always. And I did it at, uh, at Augusta. On the first tee, he would throw a ball down and hit it. He wanted to hit a driver or a brassy off the deck to start the day. <laughs> Nice, you know, really good player. Very strong, short swing, uh, kind of a beak-like nose, bald, uh, unassuming. Very, very nice man. When he won the 1967 uh, British Open, it was um, his first and what would turn out to be his only major. Um, it, it was it unleashed lots of warm feeling for him. You know, at last, Roberto is one. Yeah, so he he was he was loved. <laughs> I I seen clips of that of that open that that he won, and the crowd seems thrilled. It's almost like yeah. an Englishman <laughs> or or a Scotsman has won. It's uh, you know, he was uh, Roberto was was really widely loved, and including in America. Yeah, uh, Ben Wright uh, told me he was interviewing uh, Jack at the time. Nicholas, of course, Roberto hold out for the win <clears throat> and and Jack had tears in his eyes along with uh, many other people there so Golby wouldn't get that treatment Golby was respected but he wasn't loved like uh, Roberto was fast forwarding to the to the tournament the uh, 68 masters there's all this stuff going on in America uh, some some profoundly uh, hard things going on for Americans the masters is supposed to be this escape as i think it's supposed to be every year but especially in 1968 and in fact especially last year in 2020 it was supposed to be this moment when we could just think about something else for a change the tournament plays out but but really the important things happen late on sunday um gary player was in the lead at the beginning of the day but uh, Golby and Davy Senzo, Golby, I believe, was one back. Davy Senzo was two back. And uh, they end up tied. Their scores are the same score, <laughs> at least, at the end of the round. M maybe you could tell me what happens from there and, and maybe start with what the scorecard signing setup was <laughs> behind the 18th green at the time. First, first I'll, I'll, I'll say how emotional the, the day was, although the leading men, like, player Palmer Nicholas weren't involved at the end. Here is Roberto and it's his birthday and he hits his driver off the ground on one and a nine iron right in the hole. And right. oh my people are yes. singing happy birthday to Roberto when he comes to each green, you know, and he's making birdies and he waves and he was affable. 
Golby's playing great too. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's at this point, it's almost like the promise of what the masters could be in this year was being fulfilled that, that moment on, on number one with Roberto holing out and everybody singing happy. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. Yeah. It was very exciting. And there was a, a third uh, guy um, in the mix, just this very vivid figure to me. I watched him play a lot. Bert Yancey, um, the West point dropout, who was a manic depressive and who was so obsessed by the masters. He made molds of each green and he kept them under his bed in Augusta, I guess, brought them out and he'd palpate the uh, surface <laughs> to maybe get a better feeling of how to read the putt uh, from above the hole on number eight or whatever it was. Uh, he, he, uh, I can't remember shot 65 or 66 the last day. And it was, he was Captain Ahab, and that was his his whale there. He lived to win the Masters and didn't quite do it. Um, to cut more to the, the the key moment, on national TV, Roberto made a great birdie on uh, 17. His playing partner, uh, Tommy Aaron, wrote four on the card. And I, and I don't blame Aaron. Mistakes happen if you played in tournaments. You know, you put down the wrong score sometimes, and you check – at the end. So he wrote down the four. Uh, Roberto makes a hard-breaking bogey on 18, and it looks like he is going to lose by one or tie, maybe up in the air. Pretty informal checkout procedure there at Augusta then. A little umbrella table and a couple of chairs right by the green with the fans around you. And Roberto had done had been paired with Golby, interestingly, the day before. And Golby said, well, he just doesn't check his card. He, especially that, that day after that final round, 72nd hole bogey, Roberto, you know, just had his head in his hands and he looked at it blankly and signed. And then uh, he was off, signed it with the four. Correct score, but a wrong number on the hole. Here is where I should say rulings had been made at Augusta in the Masters in the past that were not letter of the law, USGA, RNA rules. Mm -hmm. The Masters is a thing unto itself. It's not PGA Tour or PGA of America or any of the other big organizations. They could and did let equity prevail. And I point out some different examples, one involving Dow Finsterwald and a couple with uh, Arnold Palmer. So Roberto gets up and he signed an incorrect scorecard. Equity says, uh, you know, with this level of confusion and administrative uh, lack of oversight, maybe we could call him back and let him take credit for the three that we all knew he made. And it became an emergency within three minutes. Roberto had wandered off. I think they wanted him in the Butler cabin to be the runner up or possibly the new master's champ, depending on what happened in the final few holes. And then Golby finishes and it looks like there's a tie, but then uh, Pat Summerall doing his very first uh, anchor uh, job, he's got a vamp for about 15 minutes, uh, and you know that you couldn't tell what the heck was going on when you were watching it on TV. Finally, after about halfway through that, he I think he used the words, "There seems to be a problem with Roberto's scorecard," and you know, cooler heads did not prevail. They took it to Jones and. Jones would have been watching on TV. I don't think he had ever met Roberto. And it uh, was decided with Ike Granger, who was the USGA guy, the rules guy in charge, and Jones and whoever else was in the room, that yes, we're going to make him take the score he didn't actually have. And instead of there being a playoff tomorrow, we have a new champion, Mr. Golby, and a disconsolate, weeping runner-up in uh, Roberto. So so many directions we we could take from this it is an incredible piece of television uh first of all if if people haven't uh watched the the video uh that is available on youtube through the master's channel of that final day broadcast go watch it because it's it's pretty incredible how it plays out and and the sort of uh palpable confusion that hangs over the last minutes uh, of that broadcast from the moment that Summerall seems to realize what's going on or somebody in his headset is telling him what's going on to the Butler cabin ceremony, which is tremendously awkward. 
not made any less so by the fact that Clifford Roberts as a a public facing figure was simply not up to that moment. <laughs> no, no, he wasn't. Never was. And the awkwardness piled up. They felt so bad for Roberto, even though they, to my point of view, they hadn't treated him well. Arnold or Jack couldn't have walked away and they and, and the mistake would have been allowed to stand, in my opinion. Can you imagine them denying a, a green jacket to Arnie because of a clerical error? I mean, we golfers, we, we get it. I mean, we're very strict with ourselves and, and about our rules. But as I was saying, equity had prevailed and fairness had prevailed in the past. And it could have in this case. At any rate, it's always the player who suffers and never the administrators. They they can just say, sorry about that, Roberto. So they, I was saying they piled up the awkwardness by inviting him to dinner that night. As you may know, you win the Masters. It's protocol for you to have dinner with the members at the club that night. They invited the runner-up, too. Oh, and nobody knew what to say. They even they made a sort of second champion take home trophy for Roberto. It was very through the looking glass. The only bad masters ever. Yeah. So, you know, in in our collective memory in in golf, if I if there's such a thing, it seems to me that the story of this '68 Masters of its ending, the the scorecard incident, that we've sort of focused on. Roberto made a mistake and poor Roberto. We, we feel sorry for him because he's such a sympathetic figure and, and Golby, well, well he won it, but a lot of people don't remember that. And we can talk about the treatment that Golby received from the public afterwards, which, which, which was horrible. And, uh, and, and he certainly didn't get to enjoy what a champion of the masters typically gets to enjoy. But I feel like we don't remember that, that Augusta National Golf Club, that Cliff Roberts or that Bobby Jones might have any culpability in in this incident. I feel like what we remember is that a rule was broken. This is golf. It had to be this way, which, come to think of it, is part of the myth-making of, of Masters history, right? That is a very friendly to Augusta National Golf Club way to remember these incidents but what you're bringing to the surface here is a different decision could have been made and in fact the the, the players got a raw deal here and if you're going to assign fault anywhere it, it would have to be to the administrators of of the tournament that was uh, pretty much where i came down i know that's not uh gospel that reasonable people can disagree and and do and did rules are rules idea. And, you know, it's part of what makes golf different from other sports. I, I remember, you know, I played basketball and if I stepped out of bounds and the ref didn't see it and I had the ball, I'd, I'd, I would never stop the game and say, uh, Mr. Referee, you, you missed that. I was out of bounds. Uh, the other team gets the ball. Football, you know, wide receiver pushes off or something uh, and then catches a pass. He's not going to say, well, well, we're not going to take those 10 yards because I, I actually breached a rule. Golf's different. We, you call penalties on yourself. You, you could cheat a hundred times around, really, but nope, you don't. That's uh, just, Jones was famous for saying um, he, he didn't cheat for the same reason he, he didn't rob banks. The aftermath was so bizarre. Um, Golby was blamed. People were saying and writing that he cheated Roberto, although he wasn't even in the same group. It was impossible. He got death threats. He got horrible letters. He came back as a defending champ a year later, and he got booed. Holy mackerel, booing the defending champion. Meanwhile, Roberto got all the sympathy. Uh, he won the next tournament the, uh, on the tour. He was very much in demand. He, he said it was the best thing that ever happened to him in a way. He suggested a way for uh, Golby to have um, settled the whole thing, which would have been to say, what did, um, yeah, it was the title of the last chapter, No Quiero La Copa. I don't want the, I don't want the trophy. We tied. We're playing off tomorrow. Uh, I asked Golby about that. He said he didn't consider it. The rules were strict and black and white, and they were adhered to. 
he wasn't embarrassed about the way he won, but he's privately very bitter about the negativity that surrounded him. Understandably. Uh, do you think the, do you think the public was ready to be mad at somebody and that Bob Golby was a convenient target for, <laughs> uh, for that anger? Yeah. LBJ and Bob Golby, I guess back then, <laughs> um, Bob, as I pointed out earlier, I think he played the game mad. He, he was not a fuzzy teddy bear like uh, Roberto was. Bob Glowered, he had block-like face, very handsome man, but geometric. And he fired a lot of caddies, played with a very intense style. Yeah, I, he was uh, set up. He, he was um, in position to be the, the uh, symbolic bad guy in this drama. So overall, what kinds of connections do you see between 1968 and 2020? When, when you were writing that essay last year from the November Masters, uh, what made you include a reference to this tournament in, in the lead of your piece? Well, I, I was saying about, you know, about, since I'd written a book about the only bad Masters, not that the 2020 version was bad, but I think as we're finding from watching basketball and other sports football without fans the air is out of the there's no jam there's nothing the excitement is muted at best no fault of uh, augusta national or the masters of course dustin johnson's golf was exciting but the tournament wasn't you got to have those yells out there and the echoes and so forth I, I guess that was maybe the 2020 was the second worst masters, but second by a, a many miles and still, uh, you know, meticulously run and a worthy champion and so forth. But, you know, a victim of COVID and lack of fans and not pleasing. Ultimately, I didn't feel uplifted by it. Yeah, it, it, it was muted. And, and Dustin Johnson is a, is a very sympathetic champion, I think, you know, and has become even more so as, as he's gotten older. And, and I was happy to see him win. But there, there has been something very different about sports in general, including golf in, in the past year. And, and I mean, there's the obvious uh, part of it, which is that there haven't been any fans and, and that, that electricity that comes from the presence of fans is, is certainly missing from the broadcasts and the events themselves. But Agreed. it seems like when we were in that period last year of about two months or so, March, April, a little bit of May, where there were no sports and, you know, really no live sports were on TV. We We didn't really have anything. Everybody got excited about a documentary about Michael Jordan <laughs> because they're sort of so desperate for something. And and I think that people assumed that when sports came back, oh, man, won't it be great? Won't it be a wonderful distraction from all of this? And that, And that's really how people assume that sports should operate, a distraction from what's going on in the world. And the Masters might be the ultimate example of it because what what is more different <laughs> from – the real world than, than this kind of magical little green bubble. That's a good point. Yes. It, it, it is a little Eden, isn't it? Yeah. And yet that idea of sports as a distraction or an escape seems to fail at key moments. You know, it, it failed at the 1968 masters. It, it may, it, it may be, it may have been failing for the past year or so. So do you think that maybe sports as a distraction sports as an escape that that's maybe not the right idea about sports. Is there another way for us to view them or, or do we have, do we have to evolve our thinking about that in some way? You saved the toughest question for the end. Didn't you Gary? No, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I, I don't, that's a thinker. I don't know. It's so sports watching and still playing to some degree, at least with golf. So much a part of who I am. Heck I've been writing about sports for 31 something years. Um, geez, I'm getting old. It still seems vital. It'll take a while of um, pandemics for me to start looking elsewhere to classical music or skateboarding or something. I, I don't know. I don't know where I'll go uh, without a good show of the NBA finals or MLB playoffs uh, and golf 
I don't want to think about it. I'm sorry you brought it up. <laughs> so we're not going to look into the abyss quite yet. Um, so uh, <laughs> you have a number of wonderful books. I, I'm sure that uh, many listeners are, are familiar with them. But uh, what's your most recent book? Uh, the uh, most recent uh, came out um, after Tiger's uh, stunning win in the 2019 Masters. Instant nostalgia for that and a yet another Tiger bio. Uh, it's called Roaring Back, The Fall and Rise of Tiger Woods. And, and it's, it's sold well. It's a good book. Um, I hope people will buy, buy, buy. Seriously, um, it was a fun tournament to think about again that mind-blowing combination of failure by five out of the six best players in the world, I think it was, Mm -hmm. who dunked the ball on number 12 in the final round. Kepka, Finau, Poulter. Molinari. Molinari, most of all, who had the lead and looked like a a Timex that would never stop ticking. He'd been been kicking Tiger's ass for a couple of years. Um, This looked like another example and he and he just cracked um and tiger was there tiger played smarter and better the last uh seven holes yeah that's something we haven't talked about uh so far with regards to the 2020 masters and it's uh the the odd feeling around it is it, it had been immediately preceded by the 2019 masters one of the most glorious editions of the tournament ever <laughs> it went nuts as you know uh, tiger it's always been popular, but hit, uh, um, after his, you know, various outside the ropes difficulties, his reputation had sunk quite a bit. And then he won the 2018 Tour Championship. The kids ran out as they as they do, and there was great love and amazing outpouring uh, rediscovery of how great Tiger is. I think how emotionally involved people are. Right. And then it ha- here it happens again in April. It was a it was vivid. Can you can you mention any topic that you might be working on right now for a book? Um, I have a proposal. I think it's a uh, we're about to sell it. It's a, I'll be uh, I'll be cryptic. It's about the first great American golfer. Mm. He won two U.S. Opens, and you don't know his name, huh? Unless, you know, you could amaze me by telling me who that was, and it wasn't Francis we met. That was the first name that came to mind, but I, I'm, I was assuming that you were talking about somebody different. So Yes. Yeah, this is on a deep uh, dive and uh, a, a very hidden story that's it's time to tell it. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you, Kurt. Appreciate it. It was great, Garrett. Thanks for having me on. I, I really enjoyed it, too. Kurt Sampson is the author of Roaring Back, The Fall and Rise of Tiger Woods, The Masters, Golf, Money, and Power in Augusta, Georgia, The Lost Masters, Grace and Disgrace in 68, and many other books. If you've been enjoying the Friday podcast, please leave a rating and review in Apple Podcasts or whatever you use. That really does help us out. Thanks for listening.